This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. It is the final week of the regular season. Still plenty to be decided across Major League Baseball. Aaron Judge's home run total, the NL East title, wild card spots in the National League. Plenty to tune into over the next few days. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. This is the Monday Mailbag Edition with Tim McMaster and Ken Rosenthal. We are recording on Sunday afternoon before the huge Mets-Braves game in Atlanta on Sunday night. Uh, you know, Ken, a few weeks ago, we talked about the American League Awards. Of course, Aaron Judge versus Shohei Otani has been the big debate all season long. Uh, but we talked about the other AL Awards as well. We never got to the National League, uh, and we kind of said we would. So now seems like a good time to do it with three days left in the season. How do you see the NL hardware? I know it's not as controversial or as big a debate. How do you see it playing out? Actually, Tim, the NL MVP is not as big a debate as the AL MVP, but it's more of a debate than we thought it would be, say, a month ago. True. On August 25th, Paul Goldschmidt was one home run short of leading the National League in all three Triple Crown categories. He was the obvious and clear frontrunner for the award. Since then, Goldschmidt has struggled. He had a difficult September not great numbers, 253 batting average, two home runs, 736 OPS. Not Paul Goldschmidt-like. At the same time, Manny Machado has continued his brilliant season for the Padres. Nolan Arenado has continued his brilliant season for the Cardinals. And you've had Freddie Freeman really just have an amazing year, his first year with the Dodgers, along with Mookie Betts and Trey Turner. So, it's not clear, and you can throw in the Mets candidates as well, Francisco Lindor and Pete Alonso. It's not as clear as it was, say, a month ago. Joel Sherman, my friend from the New York Post, wrote a very compelling column over the weekend saying that his choice will be Machado. I'm not sure he has a vote, but his choice for now is Machado because he feels that the other candidates all had complementary candidates on their own club. Goldschmidt had Arenado, and likewise. Lindor and Alonso, likewise. Turner, Betts, Freeman. And yet Machado was essentially alone. Remember, Fernando Tatis Jr. has not played this season, first due to his injury, then due to his suspension. The Padres have, even after getting Juan Soto, not performed the way you would think. Soto has not been what we thought he would be in San Diego. So here is Manny, sort of on an island. And for that reason, Joel says... In his opinion, Manny should be the MVP. I'm not sure Joel is wrong. And yet at the same time, Goldschmidt to me still has a completely compelling case. He is the guy offensively above all of these players. Offensively. He gets banged a little bit for his defense this year. His defense, by the metrics, the leading publicly available advanced metrics, is not as good as it has been in prior seasons, it's gone backwards a little bit. I asked some leading analysts about this, and they concluded that, yes, it was down compared to previous years. They weren't quite sure why, and they weren't quite sure how significant it was. Now, the reason I mention this and go on about it a little bit right now is because voters will look at wins above replacement. And defense, of course, is a component of wins above replacement. 
And right now, it's really close between Machado, Arnado, and Goldschmidt and Freeman in the Fangraphs version of War, and very close at the top between Arnado and Goldschmidt in the baseball reference version of War. In my mind, if he's losing points for defense, and yet the extent of whatever decline this is is not really clear and why it's happening is not really clear, and I have not gotten clear answers, I'm not going to penalize him as much as War is penalizing him. So at this moment, I guess I would lean toward Goldschmidt, though I'm not entirely sure. And if I were voting for this award, I would tell you that I've not made up my mind yet. Now, moving to NL Cy Young, it's a lot clearer to me. Might not be clear to everyone, but it's clear to me. Sandy Alcantara finishes the season with 228 and two-thirds innings. He's not going to make his last start. The Marlins said, that's it, good enough. And yes, it has been good enough. It's the most innings thrown by any pitcher since David Price in 2016. No other National League pitcher is above 200 as we record this, though Michaelis, Burns, Darvish, and Kelly are really close. They'll probably get there if they make one more start each. Alcantara is not the strikeout machine some other pitchers are, but that's because he wants the ball in play. Fewest pitches per inning in Major League Baseball, 14.2. He looks for contact, and how does that affect him? Well, it enables him to pitch deeper into games. Opponents OPS, he's fifth in the National League, Zach Gallon first. And his slight disadvantage in ERA, or his second place rating to Julio Urias, it's not that vast. Urias is at 2.12, Alcantara at 2.28, and uh, oops, Alcantara has pitched almost 60 more innings. 60! The exact number is 58 and two-thirds. If you're looking at six innings per start, that's almost 10 starts more in terms of bulk. That's incredible. And you're not going to necessarily have as great results the more innings you pitch. There's more things that can happen, right? So to me, it's clear. It's Alcantara. I know Urias has had a great year. I'm not taking anything away from him. And he might benefit from the fact that he's been protected throughout his career in the longevity of what he accomplishes as a major leaguer. He hopefully will last a good long time because he has been handled with care. Not saying Alcantara hasn't. He's a big guy. He seems to have no problems with the workload. But if you're talking about Cy Young for this year, best pitcher National League, uh, it's pretty obvious to me. Sandy Alcantara is the choice. I believe he will be an overwhelming choice. Maybe not unanimous, but pretty close. Manager of the year is a little bit tough. Buckshow Walter is probably the obvious choice, but we're sitting here on Sunday afternoon before the Sunday night game. The Mets are not certain to win the division. And if they lose what was a 10.5 game lead on June 1st, even though it's sort of no fault of their own. They've played well. They just haven't played as well as the team chasing them. That will hurt Buck, in my estimation, with the voters. Ali Marmel with the Cardinals, they're 92-66. and 66. They've had a great year. Granted, they've had a lot of cool things happening around the team, but it's his first year as manager. No question he's done a good job. And I do want to mention not just Bob Melvin, who appears to be on the verge of getting the Padres to the playoffs, though it's been a rocky sort of season for them, but also Dave Roberts. Dave Roberts has won this award only once in 2016 when the Dodgers won 91 games. As of Sunday, entering Sunday's play, the Dodgers have won 110 games, the most 
in their franchise's storied history. It's incredible. Now, you can say fairly that Roberts has the most talent. He does. You can screw up the most talent, too. He hasn't done that. And the other point I'll make about him is that this award generally favors managers who defy expectations. The Dodgers have huge expectations every year. So it's almost as if Do- so it's almost as if Roberts is playing from behind and can't catch up. I do believe though that he deserves mention. The best team in Dodgers history, my goodness. That's quite an accomplishment. But back to Showalter. The Mets not only needed a new manager, they needed a new culture. They needed players to be accountable. They needed a manager who would hold them accountable. They needed to establish a winning environment. Showalter has done all that. And he stands a good chance of becoming the first manager ever to win manager of the year with four different clubs. 1994 with the Yankees. 2004 with the Texas Rangers. 2014 with the Baltimore Orioles. He's actually two years ahead of schedule since he seems to do this on the fourth year of every decade. And this is 2022, but he would be a worthy choice with the Mets. This looks like it will be the Mets' first 100-win team since 1988. They're two wins short with four to play. And it will be their first playoff team since 2016. This franchise, before Buck got there, before Billy Epler too, and before Steve Cohen certainly, was a mess. Now they are not a mess. They are a very formidable club. Whether they win the division or not, they've had an amazing year. It's been a renaissance for the New York Mets. And Buck Showalter has been at the heart of what they have accomplished. Finally, Rookie of the Year. This one's a fun one. Two guys on the same team. Michael Harris II and Spencer Strider. Now, Spencer Strider, of course, has not pitched since September 18th. Yet he accomplished something before injuring his oblique that was just amazing. The fastest pitcher in American League National League history to get to 200 strikeouts. He did it in 130 innings. It's incredible. He moved into the rotation May 30th, about the same time the Braves called up Michael Harris II. And he's been absolutely brilliant. But in this particular case, in this award, I generally favor the position player, the everyday guy, over even the dominant starting pitcher. Now, Michael Harris's numbers, when you look at them compared to Julio Rodriguez's, are actually quite comparable. Rodriguez is going to win this award in the American League. Harris has a better batting average, better OPS, not as many homers, not quite as many stolen bases, though he has 20. Julio has 25. When you break it down to OPS plus, Julio is better. But what I'm trying to say is, for all of the attention, and rightly so, that Julio Rodriguez has received, Harris has been nearly as good offensively, which has been a surprise, and defensively, he might already be the top defensive center fielder in the game. So Michael Harris II will be a great and worthy choice for the Braves. What a job that they've done with their young players. And it's not just Harris and Strider. It's Vaughn Grissom coming up. It's Bryce Elder. It's seemingly every year three or four more guys. We talk about the Cardinals a lot in this regard. The Braves, too. Terrific player development. Terrific amateur scouting, international scouting. They've done a tremendous job. Yeah, they certainly have. And there you go. Those are the awards we think, or Ken thinks. I'm I'm not going to take credit for it, Ken. I'll give it all to you when you get all of these right. (laughs) And all the discredit. uh, After the World Series. And with that, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. 
leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved during the playoffs, you can call us 646-543-7072 or email Show at gmail.com. Now, you know this is a mailbag podcast if you're tuning in. We get a lot of people on Twitter that come through and say, hey, why didn't you talk about my team? And the response is always, Ken, it's a mailbag. You have to ask us about that team if you want to make sure we're talking about that team. That happened this week from a guy called Lance. He complained, and then he said, I'll do it right now. And he followed through, got the question in. So we're going to lead with Lance. Lance, thanks for uh, being part of the show. He says, as an Astros fan, We are very aware of how peculiar our situation is. It is incredibly difficult to justify our GM and manager not having contracts for next season, coming off another 100-win season and a fully expected deep run into the playoffs. The only thing I can think of with Dusty is possibly not wanting Joe Espada to get away. He's going to get a good look from the Marlins with this history there. Lance, I'm glad you asked this. And actually, I wrote about this whole situation the other day as well, and I'm happy to get into it again because it's really interesting. Here's a team that, under James Click and Dusty Baker, have thrived. They've been great since these two guys took over right in front of the 2020 season. They've had two great years and then a third. And yet, you're right, neither has a contract beyond this season. As I reported and as Chandler Rome has reported in the Houston Chronicle as well, there's some friction there. There are some issues. Mostly, it seems to me, from what I've reported, what I understand, between the owner, Jim Crane, and James Click, the general manager, and to a lesser extent, kind of a typical extent, between Crane and Dusty Baker. That's the old, too many analytics, I don't want this many, from the manager and the GM kind of pushing his thing along and... Those lead to differences of opinion that are quite normal, actually, in many situations throughout the game. That said, James Click has kept the Astros going through the losses of George Springer and Carlos Correa. Dusty Baker has kept this team afloat at a time when it was despised and is despised more than any team in baseball in recent baseball memory. So Dusty, we'll start with him. He's clearly done a great job. Now, is he the best strategic guy ever? That's always been the rap against him. Maybe not, but my goodness, he gets guys to play. Guys like playing for him. He's one of the great people in the game's history. Not now, history. He's one of the great guys ever in this sport. And not just because he's a friendly person, but because he's cerebral. He's just brilliant in his own way and someone who has done so much in the game. Jim Crane's not firing him. Actually, the technical term would be not renewing his contract. He has no justification to do that. I would argue as well, perhaps, that he has no justification to do it with Click either, at least based on the team's performance. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, nor does anyone else, actually, with regard to Crane and Click and Click and Baker. We don't know these things. We don't always have a full understanding of what is going on in a front office, in a manager-GM relationship. I know a lot of fans think they know everything. Maybe even some media people think they know everything. Guess what? We don't. But that said, this team, and I said this earlier with Dave Roberts, is one that you can screw up. James Click and Dusty Baker have not screwed it up. If anything, they've kept it going at a really high level. Now, Click inherited most of this group 
None of his deals has been, as I wrote the other day, particularly flashy. Some better than others, of course. That's true for any GM. And maybe he didn't have the best deadline we've ever seen, but we'll get to this in a little bit. There are many great deadline trades or de deadline acquisitions. So if this comes to pass where Click is not renewed by Jim Crane, it will be because of some kind of differences that they have in the way Click operates. That is my opinion. That seems to be what I'm gathering from the people I've talked to. There's some kind of stylistic difference between the two. It is odd. It's not the first time we've seen something like this happen. I covered a team in 1997 where Davey Johnson won the American League Manager of the Year with the Baltimore Orioles and resigned the day he won the award because of his poor relationship with Peter Angelos. Davey Johnson on that conference call said to the writers, it was a conference call with writers. We didn't have Zoom back then in 1997. He said, hey, if any of you guys know of job openings, I'm good. I'm ready to go. He was the manager of the year. So this kind of thing is not unprecedented. I can give you other examples from baseball history. It is unusual. And it is unfortunate, quite frankly, because Click and Baker, for whatever faults they might have, have accomplished an awful lot with a team that has lost draft picks, a team that lost its general manager and manager, a team that has been booed on the road, rightly so, for what it did. So here we are. I'm not exactly sure where this is all going, but certainly there is tension there, and that is what I wrote about the other day. Thanks, Lance. One way you can probably uh, push to get your job extended is to win a championship, and we'll see if the Astros can uh, can get that done this season, a championship maybe with a little less controversy around it. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, next question is from Michael. He says, I'm 58 years old and I've been a White Sox fan since I was a youngster watching Dick Allen launch balls at Comiskey Park. This has been by far the most unenjoyable season I can recall. The inability to stay healthy, play fundamentally smart and sound baseball, and the fact it's a poorly constructed team with too many first-base DH-type players makes changing a necessity. My concern is with some large contracts and almost all the players at their lowest value right now, I don't see how Han, if he returns, will be able to fix this. I'm afraid they're going to be forced to hope for health and keep players bouncing back and run pretty much the same team back next year. What are your thoughts? Michael, you raise great points. And the worst thing for a fan, I would imagine, is not when his team or her team is bad. But when his team or her team is hard to watch and not fun to watch, exactly what you described. The White Sox, yes, structurally are flawed. They're too right-handed offensively, too many DH types, not good enough defensively. Yes, the injuries were a huge part of their season, as they were for other teams. And some of those great inexpensive contracts we thought would serve them so well, Tim Anderson, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Yoan Moncada, those deals are starting to get more expensive and those players aren't performing at that high a level. So I'm not saying they're not worth it. It's just not looking like the bargains that they thought. And that raises the question, okay, where are they going with this? 
I'm not sure it's an easy fix. A new manager is going to help, in my opinion. They have had leadership questions with Larusa. There's no question about it. We've talked about that ad nauseum. The right manager could make a significant difference with this kind of team, kind of the way Showalter did with the Mets. That said, they still have to do some things this offseason, and that will depend on how much flexibility Jerry Reinsdorf is willing to give them. And I'm not sure it's an easy fix, but what they have going for them is a division that, even though it is improving, and the Guardians are only going to get better, they've got tremendous young talent. Some of it's in the big leagues right now. The Royals probably will change managers. They've already changed the president of baseball operations. They've got young position players. They need to fix their young pitching. At some point, they're going to get better too. The Tigers are going to get better with Scott Harris running their show instead of Alavila. And the Twins, they're kind of in the middle and flux a little bit. They're probably going to lose Correa, but they should be reasonably competitive. That said, we're not talking about the AL East here. And we're not talking about really even the NL East. It's not a great division. So if the White Sox make some tweaks, get a different manager, I would expect they'd be in contention. But I agree, it's not an easy fix. We've gotten a lot of seeding questions recently. I'm going to get a couple of them into this week's show. Can we start with David? He says, the Rays and Mariners are neck and neck for the number two and number three American League wildcard spots. Many argue, rightly so, that Cleveland is a tough team to watch out for. However, if you're the Mariners, I assume it's in their best interest to stay put at number three instead of flying to Toronto for a three-game series at the Rogers Center, plus avoid a potential series versus the Astros if they advance to the ALCS. How far do you think teams will go to intentionally lose or make themselves non-competitive for the last two or three games of the regular season? An extreme example might be to start a position player as their starting pitcher. I'd have a problem with that. A lot of people would have a problem with that. You have to respect the integrity of the game to some degree. But the point you raise is very fair, and a number of writers have pointed this out as well. Joe Sheehan is one of them. When you have the setup the way you do, and you have a weak third division champion, I'm not saying the Guardians are weak, but they're certainly weaker than the Yankees and Astros. Actually, maybe not weaker than the Yankees. They're not a classic powerhouse division champion. That's reasonably safe to say without insulting them. They're a really good team. I just don't know that they're a team that kind of scares you. So if you are in this mix for the American League wildcard, isn't it better to finish sixth overall in the seeding, be the third wildcard, to put it another way, and play the Guardians than it would be to play Tampa Bay or Toronto? That's arguable. The Guardians are really good, and they've had a great month, great run to the finish here. But that's the danger here, that while rewarding the division champion is something that the sport always should do, and I'm strongly in favor of that, you have the potential where the wild cards are perhaps stronger than the division champion, the third one, and you have this kind of scenario. Now, as far as trying to be the third wild card or the sixth seed and trying to get there some nefarious way... I don't know that that will ever happen, but there may be teams that make choices and say, you know what, we're not going to worry about seeding. We'll pitch, we'll save our best guys for the wild card round, and we'll pitch whoever down the stretch if it's close. I can see that happening for sure. All right, and then another question on the reseeding. This one comes from voicemail. 
Hey, Ken, Reggie from the Austin, Texas area with a postseason format question for you. One of their criticisms of the format when we went to the single wildcard elimination game was that sometimes the best team as the top division winner playing the wildcard would be matched up against a team that was stronger than the other two division winners. I can specifically remember in the 2015 National League playoffs, we had a 98-win Pittsburgh team and a 97-win Cubs team in the wildcard game. And the winner of that team played the 100-win Cardinals, while the Mets and Dodgers, who both had weaker records, played each other in the other series. Now, under the new format, we still kind of have that situation. And I think since one of the division winners has to play in the wild card round now, I think they should be rewarded by facing the weakest of the wild cards. But having said that, wouldn't it it make sense to reseed the playoffs so that the weakest of the two surviving teams plays Houston uh, and vice versa? Houston could end up facing Toronto or Seattle and a weaker, albeit good, Rays team plays the Yankees in the the next round. Reggie, I'm with you. And it's a question that is along the lines of the previous question. And I have reached out to MLB to ask why they are not reseeding after each round, because that's ultimately what we're asking here. Hey, what are we doing? Why are the Astros going to perhaps face a tougher opponent than the Yankees when the Astros are finishing with a much better record than the Yankees? So when I asked MLB this question, the answer I got was twofold. One, this way you can make a bracket. Now, it helps fan understanding of the process. I think they want that NCAA tournament feel. To me, this is not the NCAA tournament. There's only one NCAA tournament, men's and women's. It's a one-game knockout situation. It's different, but they seem to think the brackets are something fans can easily understand. The second part of their answer is more interesting and perhaps more of a solid justification. So baseball is an everyday sport, unlike other sports. So when you have a set bracket, it minimizes the impact of teams waiting until the very last minute to travel to the opponent in the next round. On the travel issue, you can imagine a bunch of teams sitting around on Sunday night of the wildcard series waiting to figure out where they are going, which would put them at a disadvantage competitively and logistically. That still would happen without reseeding, but they feel, baseball does, that the impact is much less. I get it. I still don't love it. To me, what should drive this above all is the competition and keeping that competition as the word is not legitimate and the word is not valid, but I guess as strong as possible. You want the competition to be fair. You want it to reflect what these teams have accomplished. And by reseeding, you could do that. Houston would face either a weak division winner or in this particular season, the weakest of the wild cards. It sets up that way this year. It's not going to set up this way every year. There's always different scenarios that arise. But I expect this to be something that is discussed as we go forward. And if baseball ultimately feels it's necessary to tweak the format and to go with reseeding, which I believe they should, then they will have to do that. 
I don't know that baseball is wedded to any of these things. Just like next year when we have the shift restrictions and the pitch clock, if those need adjustments, then baseball is going to have to make those adjustments. This is not a black and white world where we can only do this and we're going to do this forever. I would hope and I would expect that league officials are not looking at it like that. They want to put the best foot forward, and I'm not so sure this is the best foot forward, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what they do. We'll see how this one turns out with these matchups as well. All right, no better time to look back in the trade deadline than right at the beginning of the playoffs. Pat says, it seems like many trade deadline acquisitions have not played up to their expectations. Who are some players acquired at the deadline who have performed well for their new clubs? Pat, I'm glad you asked this because, one, it forced me to do a little work and research. And also, for fans of teams that didn't improve their offense enough, I believe you're going to like my answer. So when I looked at the top performers of players that were traded, the best guys traded at the deadline, who at least have performed like their reputations, it's all pitchers. Juan Soto, great player, has not performed that well. Josh Bell, no, has not been good. You can look at the various hitters who have been traded. Trey Mancini, it's been a really mixed bag. Nobody has stood out that much. So I know the Mets fans are thinking, hey, we should have done better. We should have gotten a better DH. And maybe that's true. Wilson Contreras was not traded. J.D. Martinez was not traded. But when you look at the players traded who were changing teams, they have not performed at such a high level. The best ones have been pitchers. I'll start with Luis Castillo, the Mariners. Since joining the Mariners, 3.17 ERA and 11 starts. He's been everything they could have wanted. He had a little bit of a rocky period earlier or at least in September, tough starts in Oakland and Kansas City, not the greatest offensive clubs, but he rebounded in his most recent start against Oakland at home. He signed the extension. Great, great pickup. I know they gave up a lot, and we'll see in coming years if perhaps they gave up too much, but for Luis Castillo, that was a pretty good thing to do. St. Louis Cardinals, the two starting pitchers that they acquired, Jose Quintana and Jordan Montgomery. Quintana, 2.11 ERA in 11 starts. Looks like he'll be part of the postseason rotation. Montgomery, 3.11 ERA in 11 starts. He, too, is likely to be in that group. He's been somewhat shakier of late, so perhaps with Flaherty coming on now, things could look a little different. But a lot of people in St. Louis wanted them to get Juan Soto, and I get it, but they needed pitching. They needed pitching badly. They got pitching, and even though the two guys they got were not top of the market, they have performed well, and the Cardinals are thrilled with what they've accomplished. The last player I'll mention is one who initially struggled after being traded, and to the point where a lot of us thought, wow, what was this team thinking? Or not so much what was this team thinking, more what has happened to this guy? And that's Josh Hader. Josh Hader is... In his last nine appearances, last nine, no earned runs, over eight and two-thirds innings, 12 strikeouts, one walk. That is Josh Hader. Now, yes, it started off poorly for him, but right now, the Padres, one of their strengths, actually, is their bullpen. It's Hader, it's Pierce Johnson coming on, Nick Martinez, Robert Suarez. They have a nice group, and of course, Hader is the anchor, so... I just gave you four pitchers and no position players. There is not a position player that I can identify who has just been lights out to the point where I'd say, wow, great move. 
I mean, Juan Soto was a great move, but we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. And it'll be interesting to see in the playoffs if some of those guys have those big moments that we see on the position side. And then you can look back and think, well, it was it was still worth it, even though maybe they didn't help us get to the postseason. They helped us once we were there. Uh, all right. Josh says, over the past five to 10 years, we've seen the embracement of legalized sports gambling in all major sports leagues. We've also seen leagues such as the NFL suspend players for an entire season for betting on games. Considering baseball's infamous gambling history with the Black Sox and Pete Rose, my question is, does the new CBA address gambling discipline in any form? And what would a potentially gambling-related suspension look like for a player or coach? Josh, the new CBA has nothing new on discipline. Discipline is still the same. If you violate Rule 21D and you bet on a major league game, you get a one-year suspension. If you bet on a game in which you participate, not just some random game that other teams are playing, a game that you're in, you get an indefinite suspension, and it's subject, of course, to the commissioner and all of that. You bet with a bookie, same thing. So there are rules on the books regarding betting on baseball that have been in the books for years, and that's why Pete Rose is not in the sport. He's banned. Now, the CBA does address certain other things with regard to the embracing of gambling that is going on, not just in baseball, but in all sports. But specifically to baseball, what they've done is opened a player safety hotline for the purpose of reporting threats. If players are threatened by gamblers, there's a number they can call to report those threats. There's also enhanced safety measures at the ballpark with regard to all this. The CBA also explicitly states teams cannot sell biomedical data the medical information from, from the wearable technologies that the players wear. So gamblers would want all this information, right? Any information is valuable, but no, they're not going to be able to sell them. And obviously if they did, that would be a big no-no and I'm sure subject to major discipline. Also, and this is more on a positive note for players, they can sign brand ambassador contracts with gambling companies. We've seen David Ortiz, he's with Foxbet. Now he's a retired player, but players can do this even if they're active. So the new CBA does address gambling to some degree, just not in the way that you thought. The discipline is the same as it's always been. Safety hotline stands out to me because that's one thing I actually worry about with gambling and sports is Somebody out there that's a gambler maybe isn't mentally well doing something really dumb around a player. That That is worrisome, I think, for all athletes in all sports. So it's good that, that at least that hotline exists, Ken. That's good information. I wasn't aware of that either. All right, great questions. We, I say that every week because every week we have great questions coming in. If you want to get one of those ones in later down the road, you can call us, 646-543-7072. The email address, TA Baseball Show at gmail.com coming up on the feed this week the mariners heading to the postseason first time since 2001 and their play-by-play voice dave sims going to join starkville on tuesday that'll be a lot of fun dave has had some tremendous calls here in the second half of the season uh wednesday's the round table 3-0 show on thursday dvr and law on friday and then we are hitting the playoffs Friday, the beginning of the wild card round. And off we go into October for a dollar a month for six months right now. You can join the athletic 
Do that by going to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, I know no games in the wild card round, but enjoy it. Enjoy watching them and not having to be on the air for them. Tim, one thing I want to say and encourage listeners about, check out Dave Sims' call on Cal Raleigh's playoff clinching home run, the walk-off the other night. It's on Twitter, and you can watch Dave as he makes the call. The Mariners and their television partners do this, where they film the announcers, the play-by-play men, announcing certain big moments. It's great to watch. Aaron Goldsmith is fantastic. I work with him at Fox. And Dave Sims on Raleigh's Homer, it's just amazing. And to see his excitement, and obviously it's different when you're calling a local team versus a national team, or versus a national game, I should say. National announcers have to be impartial, but local announcers, hey, they get excited, and rightly so. And Dave Sims is so excited. For me, I work as a dugout reporter, right? I've worked in television for a long time now, and I've never seen that. I've never been in the booth with Joe Buck making a call and seeing his excitement. And to see Dave Sims in that moment, it is so cool. I can't even begin to tell you, and I really look forward to hearing him with Jason and Doug. It's awesome. Yeah, he is enjoying the ride, that's for sure. Uh, And so have we this season on this show. uh, We'll keep it going through the playoffs. Uh, Depending on Ken's schedule, we may need to tweak it a little bit. But next week, we will be on schedule as usual, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep everybody updated after that. Ken, have a great week, and everybody out there, have a great week. Tim, you too. Thank you.